0: Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lassar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamtel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Andvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to Preferred Shares. We've got a very interesting episode for you all about a company most people might know about and being most famous for their many branded candy products. This is Mars Corporation that's best known for Milky Ways and Snicker Bars and M&Ms and Wrigley's Gum. But it's got much more than that. It has a foods division and a pet care division. And it's now a company that's still private, but it has annual revenues of at least $45 billion per year, which is a larger than Coca-Cola company now. And being still private and extremely secretive, we've seen periodically on finance Twitter these polls that basically ask us of, of the private companies that are still out there, which will we want to invest in? And Mars is usually the one that garners the most votes out of all the still private companies. So anyways, this episode has been pre- prepared mostly by Lawrence, and he's going to lead us through the brief history of the company, the founding Mars family and a bunch of really interesting anecdotes that we've read through old articles. And our primary source material is a book called Emperors of Chocolate, which was published in 1999. So this episode was not an easy task to get information given the secrecy and privacy of the company. But anyways, I'll let Lawrence take it away. Lawrence, floor is yours? Thanks, Doug. I just want to say, uh,
1: before we get into this, I do recommend that if you are interested in anything, confectionery history, chocolate, or just like a good corporate story, The Emperors of Chocolate is a very good book. It's a little dated, but not too much. I give a little shout out to Joel Glenn Brenner, who wrote the book. She's one of the few people who's had access to Mars Facilities and Mars Records and former Mars Associates. So I think it's out of print, but you can find used copies on Amazon and other bookstores. So I just wanted to make a mention of that. So the story of Mars is very fascinating. As Doug mentioned, it's very secretive. It's a very large company. And I I think most people, they do know it for the food products, whether it's confectionery or things like Ben's original rice, formerly Uncle Ben's rice which uh, has a long, long history, one of the first rice products that was made for mass consumption with a branded label. But the company that is Mars today is very different from the Mars of of recent history. For example, there's about 130,000 employees, and most of those are actually in the pet care division. That consists of things like pet food and pet snacks and pet treats, but also 2,500 veterinary clinics and hospitals. So they've really made that their growth engine for the company. And also they've expanded not just into products, but also services. They also still maintain their large divisions in snacking and food. And the thing that's interesting about Mars is they've always been about global domination. So they compete not just in the U.S., but abroad. They were early into Russia. For example, the Gulf War has some stories about how their supply chain was helping the U.S. military because they had ties to the uh, Middle Eastern allies there for the coalition forces. So it's it's a very fascinating company that has really played the long game, expanding their empire throughout the world. And the story, as most people probably are familiar with, goes back to Frank Mars, who was sort of a serial entrepreneur, which I think sometimes is, is a, a nice way to say he failed a lot. But he had a lot of attempts at making confectionery products, and he went bankrupt, I think, a few times. I think he had a failed marriage along the way. But he ended up striking it big with Milky Way, which was, I think, around the time of World War One, not, uh, not too far from that time frame. He and his son, Forrest Mars, kind of argued about who got the credit for that product. But Milky Way, it's sort of difficult to understate the importance of that product because one of the first branded, labeled confectionery goods that had a, a reach that was more than just local Frank Mars is one of the first people, along with Milton Hershey, who really took the candy industry to a sort of national stage and started that empire there. And the interesting thing is Frank Mars and Forrest Mars, his son, had this falling out along the way. And they're both very strong-headed individuals. And Frank basically tells Forrest, I'm not giving you your stock in this company. I'm going to give you some money and go to England and Europe, and you can start your empire over there and leave the U.S. to me. And Forrest, being very headstrong, goes and does that, and so that starts kind of a second chapter in the company. And uh, what year was
0: that? Do you remember? I, I don't
1: remember exactly. I want to say it was in the 1920s, early 1930s.
0: But before, after World War One, but before World War Two, Frank sent his son. From his first wife Ethel, that's another interesting piece of trivia. Is that Frank Mars married two women, both with the same name Ethel? Right. Yeah,
1: that yeah, is a kind of a coincidence. That uh, you know, it's a little funny part of history, I guess. Yeah.
0: But but Frank gave his son thirty thousand dollars, and I and I shared this quote from you uh, from another book that I that I found about what exactly Frank told his son, Forrest, he said to Forrest to, quote, germinate your arse to the other side of the Atlantic. <laughs> and, and like you said, gave him $30,000 $30, and the rights to use the Mars bars recipe anywhere outside of America. And Forrest chose the UK to, to start the business outside of the US for a. In Mars. which I, I
1: think it's, it's also important to note that $30,000 back then would have been, what, at, at least a couple of million probably. So...
0: A lot. Yeah, you know, enough.
1: Yeah, and, enough. Uh, yeah, and not, <laughs> not insignificant amount of money. And, and so Forrest has a totally different mindset, whereas Frank was kind of a dreamer and spent a lot of money on cars and houses and was more or less satisfied with with selling candy bars. Forrest was kind of empire minded. It's very important to note that he was an industrial engineer by training. He had gone to Yale University, I believe. And so he was He had an eye not just for product and branding, but also for process management. So some of the things he does is he goes to work for Nestle. He never mentioned who he was because they probably wouldn't have hired him. And this is another funny part of the story is that corporate intrigue or corporate espionage, however you want to call it, was very rife in the candy industry. We've all grew up watching Willy Wonka talking about the spies and so on. And so they were literally... That was
0: truly real yeah
1: exactly they were stealing each other's recipes and
0: so right here lawrence realized after the fact that he made some bold claims about frank mars we want to be sure you know that is really not clear that frank stole ideas or methods from nestle but what is not debated is that he definitely learned from them and now back to the episode
1: and uh, figuring out how to make milk chocolate which was Uh, almost like splitting the atom. It was so difficult for people to do. And so nobody wanted to share their methodology for, for doing that. So Forrest goes to work for Nestle. He learns how to make milk chocolate. He goes out and he starts to make his own candy in Europe. And along the way, as we said, he has an eye for opportunity. And so in the 30s during the Spanish Civil War, he's rumored to have seen some Spanish soldiers eating chocolates covered with candy coating and The reason for that is the candy stopped the the chocolate from melting. And so he recognizes an opportunity to sell this sort of summer-proof chocolate. And so they branded M&M's as sort of competed like Smarties in the UK. And so there's not a whole lot of clarity on how that worked out. But that was one of his first major products.
2: What's the best chocolate candy under the sun? In your wildest dreams, not this one. What a chocolate mess. But with M&M's chocolate candies, there's no chocolate mess. Here, there, anywhere under the sun. Because with M&M's chocolate candies, the milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand.
1: He also bought, uh, is it Chappie's Dog in the UK, which was uh, one of the first dog food. Yeah, adventures. 1935.
0: In 1935, he bought Chapel Brothers, which had the one of the very first branded dog food and cat food, basically food in a can for your little critters at home. Right, and so
1: that's just important to note because this is at a sort of a, a time in history where during the Depression, there's not a lot of. Food to go around for people. And so, who would have thought that branded dog food and so on would be a thing? And of course, Mars being Mars, he recognized that opportunity and he acquired that. And that became one of his early parts of his empire. So, along the way, Frank Mars has, I believe, a heart attack or a stroke. He ends up passing away, and Forrest goes back to the U.S. to claim his share of his father's company, and he eventually sort of, I think this is sort of a polite way to put this, but he kind of bullies his sister and some other holders into selling him their shares, and so he combines his father's company with his company, and that is really where the modern Mars story begins, because he he pretty much overhauled the corporation from that standpoint. He got rid of a lot of executives he thought were just kind of hangers on and people who were there to cash a check. He got rid of corporate cars, corporate expense accounts. One of the funny stories is that he was so dramatic. He gets down in the boardroom in front of the employees and says, I'm a godly man. I'm going to pray. And then he prays, I pray for Milky Way, I pray for Snickers. And he said, basically, Mars better be your kind of religion because this is what we do here. Profit is the goal, and that's the only reason we show up to work.
0: Right. And another example, kind of this mix of thriftiness and egalitarianism, he knocked down almost all the walls. There were no offices for managers and employees. It was an open floor plan at headquarters. Everybody
1: knew what everybody else was making. There was no no uh, hidden nature as far as their salaries are concerned. So you know, sort of like uh, part Adam Smith, part Mao tongue, I guess, as far as his <laughs> part, as far as his corporate ideology goes. But one of the interesting things was he was always interested in streamlining things. Unlike a lot of chocolatiers or confectionery entrepreneurs, he was always about how can we make the highest quality products with the least amount of human interaction. If you think about that, it's a big deal because human interaction introduces chances for uh, germs and impurities and things like that. So he's really about how do I make the process as streamlined and as efficient as possible? He invests large sums of money back into the company, never relied on debt as far as we know, didn't take many dividends out for himself. He had a time card, just like his employees did. His children, when they went to work for the company, were given time cards.
0: That's another interesting thing, Lawrence, is I don't know if that that policy is still in effect, but everyone had a time card to punch in, even the CEO, like you said. And if they were on time for work Throughout the entire year, you got a bonus, a 10% bonus, I think. I, right? I think
1: that's true. And everybody's compensation was tied to the performance of the company. So you sank or swam together. The company makes more money. You make more money. The company sales are down. Your salaries also going down. So everybody was very much sort of of the mindset that this is a team. This is what we're out to build. And our goal is not just to make money, but also to dominate. And they were extremely competitive in all their different areas in the marketplace. And I think it's it's just so important to note that he was so secretive. I think he gave one interview his whole life to a trade journal. He just was not interested in giving away his corporate secrets, not sharing anything. And he just insisted on staying private because he talks about wanting to have the freedom to run his business. And he thought he could do that only by having total control, no other shareholders, no SEC or anybody like that to worry about. And so Devin, I think you've made a point about his five founding principles that they ran the company off of.
2: Yeah. I mean, they, they still list them on their website. The first one listed and the one that really stands out is quality. Quality in everything that they do. And it shines through every product that they produce. And along with that is responsibility, where everybody is to take responsibility for their own actions. You touched on the fact that everyone will share the benefits of doing well and succeeding but if the company does not perform everyone will feel that as well then there's a focus on both efficiency and freedom and i love the line with freedom freedom lets us shape our future performance allows us to remain free
1: And so it's so important. And the quality thing is is something that we've mentioned, but it's worth kind of reinforcing. And so Forrest Mars was known for going to stores unannounced to his employees. If he didn't see Mars products in a certain grocery store, he would get after whoever the territory managers were, said, why the hell isn't our candy in the store? He would buy the M&Ms and he would be furious if some of the little M&Ms printed on the candies were not Complete or missing the legs or anything like that. So he kind of had a a way of enforcing standards. And so he was deeply involved in the day-to-day operations of the company, which I, I think is important for a founder to be involved at that level, because it shows that he has skin in the game, he's genuinely interested in how everything's being run and operated, and it has his name on the on the building. So that's that's what it represents. The Mars name should stand for quality. And I think it's, it's sort of, we, we all think this way, of course, nobody wants to tout inferior products, but this was also true at a time when branded consumer goods were, were not as established as they are today. So he was really one of the guys first in this industry to really drive quality and make sure that all of the candy bars were more or less identical. And they were known for throwing out whole batches that he deemed were inferior. I just think that's important to think about because this was a time when that was not so commonplace.
0: Right. And other ways of the company's operations also speaks to that striving towards the highest quality. One thing I think which you forgot to mention is that they pay overpay their employees and managers in in one or two articles i read the pay is two times that of a similar position for one of their competitors like nestle or hershey two times the the compensation and that affords mars the ability to pick the cream of the crop in terms of employees and managers and and another thing you know going back in time a little bit maybe you can talk about how <laughs> Hershey essentially supplied all of the chocolate in North America and how even in the early days of Mars, they were basically using Hershey chocolate to make their candy bars.
1: Yeah. So one of the funny stories is about probably the most famous Mars product, M&M's. And so when Frank Mars was was running the United States company, the United States branch, I guess, he was basically getting all of his chocolate from Hershey. And it kind of made sense because if you think about it, the Mars bars, whether it's a Snickers or a Milky Way, they don't have as much chocolate because it's basically a chocolate coating. So it wouldn't have made as much sense for them to expose themselves to volatile cocoa prices and and actually a fairly complicated production process for cocoa. It just made more sense for them in Frank Mars's mind to buy that chocolate from Hershey, who was the major producer in the U.S., well, when Forrest Mars took over, he decided that he wanted to keep some of that connection to Hershey along or alive because World War II was about to start. And he kind of knew after World War One and every, all these other experiences that the government might ration Coco. And even Hershey was worried about that too. They petitioned the government saying that <laughs> chocolate is a national security risk. We've got to give the soldiers energy, I guess. And so Mars knew that that lifeline to Hershey was going to be important to keep his chocolate supply coming and, and to keep Mars in business, basically. And so he brought in a, a gentleman named Bruce Murray, who was the son of a Hershey executive, William Murray. So the M&M on, the, on those candies stands for Mars and Murray. But critically, once World War II was passed and some of those government contracts expired for M&Ms and things like that, Frank Mars, sorry, excuse me, Forrest Mars broke those ties with Hershey. And he decided, I'm going to make my own chocolate because I want to control my own product. And the final analysis, I'm competing with Hershey. So why do I want to have my chocolate supply coming from my main domestic competitor? So it was kind of like, it kind of gives you some insight into how Forrest Mars thought, whereas his dad was kind of like, let's get along with our industry peers and they'll protect their turf and we'll fight for ours. Forrest Mars was not about that at all. He was about, I'm going to play the long game, I'm going to suffer in the near term in order to establish my own empire, and I'm not just in it to compete, I'm in it to crush you. And it really put the pressure on Hershey because uh, external sales, so to speak, of uh, chocolate was about 30% of their revenue, so this was not an insignificant blow to have Mars, with their own deep pockets, go into their own chocolate production.
0: What would be good to talk about next?
1: I, I think we should expand a little bit more on those five principles. Yeah. So one of the one of the critical things in the Mars corporate mindset, that freedom aspect. This is a quote from Forrest Mars. We need freedom to shape our future. We need profit to remain free. And I think that's one of those things where You look into the financials of the company, they never took on any debt as far as I know when Forrest and his sons were running the company and they didn't take out much in dividends. They reinvested in the business very heavily and they pretty much decided that they were going to keep their business running in a self-reinforcing way because that was the only way they saw that they could be self-reliant as far as not having to rely on external credit, external shareholders, sort of the whims of, of investors and creditors who are not as aligned as they were in the long-term vision of the company. And I'm not sure, there's always trade-offs involved when you're public versus private, but I'm not sure that this recipe would have worked uh, unless there was somebody as strong-headed and as determined as Forrest Mars who in my mind, he's a controversial figure, alienated a lot of people, but he's sort of a undiscovered, if not under-discussed, American industrialist. I mean, I, I think it's, it's easy to understate his importance simply because nobody knows that much about him. But if you think of his impact on American culture, our grocery stores, everything like that, it's, it's something that I, I think he's underappreciated for sure
2: i think one of the most interesting things is that as a private company they were afforded the luxury of thinking truly long term they weren't looking minute by minute or quarter by quarter and having to answer to outsiders you know about what they're going to be doing in the next 4 weeks they can afford to take a truly long-term perspective. And in terms of measuring performance, they focused on return on total assets. And what's very interesting is that they measured that by using current replacement cost of their assets, not the original cost. And they targeted divisional returns of pre-tax 18%, which is pretty lofty relative to comps, but that's what they aimed for. And so, as Lawrence touched on before, that really incentivized them to continually reinvest to make sure that they were doing everything as efficiently as possible to maintain both output while not sacrificing quality.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've read a few articles and stories about that. And did you catch the complaints from some of the retailing partners about order fill rates from Mars to you know, like a, a retailer like Kroger or Target was always below average because Mars always filled more orders than it could actually send out because they pushed maximum utilization of their plant and equipment. Uh, so it ticks off some of their retailing partners off, but it still, Mars is in business for themselves not to you know, make their end market channels the most profitable they can be.
1: When it does kind of show you too that which of those two in the relationship had the most power, right? It's not like uh because of those those products and their strength in the consumers' minds, I think they kind of had the a little bit more push or pull than than the retailers did and that was they kind of had just kind of had to take it. Another thing that's interesting about Mars is they didn't leave any stone unturned as far as what they were thinking about in their universe. So if you're in the chocolate business, you have to pay attention to cocoa prices. And so they even employed meteorologists to monitor the weather so that they could inform their contracting and their bidding on cocoa contracts. There is a gentleman who worked for Mars by the name of John Baker who kind of came up with a very effective way of predicting or counting, I should say, all of the various cocoa pods on a trees and extrapolating that to make a prediction for the entire crop. So they were really deep in the weeds as far as the science goes. And they even had their own commodity trading division. So whereas... Milton Hershey and his successors were sort of at the mercy of cocoa prices in the 70s during the big commodity inflation. Mars, I don't know if they welcomed it, but they certainly navigated it fairly well because they saw it as a way to make money tangentially to what they were already doing. And of course, they would know a lot about cocoa because it's critical to what they were producing. So I I find it fascinating that this sort of secretive company, we think about it maybe as a close proxy to... Nestle or Procter and Gamble, but they almost have this Glencore aspect to them as well, where they're making money off of volatility in commodities markets, and it's maybe if it's not just hedging their bottom line, it's certainly aiding it.
0: They've got to have more than just experts in cocoa. Think of all the other sugar, all the pet food products, rice, and you sugar, yeah. sugars, rice, grains, et cetera, meat, right. Um, whatever else goes into dog and cat Metal for
1: cans, you name it. Yeah. And, and so it, it's kind of interesting to think, okay, well, this was this great company, but they didn't do everything right. And as it transitioned to Forrest Jr. and John Mars, they would be the third generation of the Mars family to run the company. They started to run into, I don't know if you would consider it trouble, but definitely they were faced with some obstacles. So one of the things that's interesting about a private company is, yes, as Doug mentioned, they were paying their employees two and three times what their industry peers were getting paid in other companies. They also had a hard time retaining some of that top executive talent, because if you're a top executive, you think, I have aspirations someday to be CEO. That's just not going to happen in a family-run business if your last name is not on the building. And so a fair amount of their... Talent and the marketing divisions and other, other divisions left the company, and so that was something that sort of hurt them. And some of their failed or or missed opportunities. We there's a famous anecdote about ET where they were offered the chance to have M and M's featured as the candy that lures ET into the little boy's house and uh, Forrest. Jr. and John just refused that because they didn't see the value in it, and that left the door open for Hershey's and Reese's
0: Pieces. that's very interesting that they failed to see the value in that. Maybe it was just because it was a short bit in a film, but different from Hershey's, Mars has historically spent lots of money on advertising. Yeah. Whereas... Hershey's.
1: They were latecomers to the advertising game, yeah.
0: They were very latecomer. Hershey's, I think their very first solo advertising campaign was in the late 60s. They had done some, they paired up and partnered with a few other different brands to co-market in the 50s, but... Hershey's also focused on quality. And the thing about Hershey's was the founder was, he didn't think he needed to advertise. He wanted to let the quality of the product speak for itself. And it, and it did successfully for many years, but we, we can have another debate on whether or not that was a, a huge missed opportunity and just let Mars take more share than it should have, just simply because of coming late to the advertising game.
1: I think there's some element of cyclicality to this as well because Hershey was sort of the dominant – confectionery company in the U.S. for most of the early 20th century, Mars was present. In fact, you can go back and look at some of the stats from the Great Depression and certain Mars products like Snickers actually did very well during the Depression because it was a value. You could get chocolate plus peanuts, which was energy plus protein for five cents or whatever the cost was. And so Mars sales actually rose during the Depression. But Hershey's never felt really threatened by that. It wasn't until Forrest Mars came back and consolidated the two companies and really started to compete hard with Hershey's that they were faced with a real challenge. And so they took those blows. They adapted. They made some pretty good acquisitions. They had acquired the H.B. Reese company in 1963. That's their number one product, by the way, now is, is Reese's Peanut butter cups. Hershey's number
0: one product,
1: I believe so, and that's something that that the Mars boys would have missed because they grew up in England where nobody likes peanut butter, so they w- would not have seen the value there. So that's this is like punch counter punch, punch counter punch, and they go back and forth. But I, I do think that this this recent uh, acquisition spree by Mars in the pet category is really kind of an indication of where they see their future. They've sort of seeded the number one spot in the U.S. to Hershey as far as confectionery goes, and now they've really pivoted to pets as as their main category.
0: Yeah, and it, I think it really started in earnest in the mid-2000s. They bought Doan Pet Care Company, which was the largest private label manufacturer of pet food in the U.S. at the time, and They've just kept adding other pet food brands and also much more than just pet food, veterinary hospitals and clinics. And also, I think it was this the beginning of this year or sometime last year, they bought a A diagnostic equipment company called Heska, which provides kind of the equipment and consumables to vets to do lab work on animals. And so they are all across the value chain in the pet world.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting that for a product company, they're now branching out into the service category where... I can only assume they, they see a, an opportunity to consolidate what's still pretty fragmented and really sort of bring a lot of these things under their umbrella. And I, I think, Doug, to your point, when you just the start of the mid-2000s, Devin, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this about the time that somebody other than a Mars started to run the company?
2: Uh, yeah. Ba- back to something you touched on earlier, which was that Mars has a history of paying very attractive salaries for its employees, sometimes more than double industry comps. They've also not just been able to attract top talent, but retain top talent, which is critical, especially uh, as the third generation was aging out of the business, so to speak. And so you can look at previous CEOs, Grant F. Reed. He had worked his way up holding... Almost a dozen roles in the company. Joined in 1988. Retired in 2014. S- sorry, he he's became CEO in 2014. Retired in, in September 2022. 20, uh, Current CEO Paul Wyrock. He's been at the company for 23 years. If you look at the divisional presidents for the three core divisions, they've all been with the company for you know nearly 20 years plus each.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's uh, an interesting thing because you have this sort of dichotomy where we mentioned that some of their top, top talent, they left knowing that there was no, not a chance for them to run the company, but then the rank and file employees, mid-level management, a lot of those people have stayed. And I think that maybe has marked a shift in the company. We You look throughout the history of Mars and their their approach was not to acquire, but to build out. So they would start from the ground up. They were early into Russia post the collapse of the Soviet Union. They were very patient, but now they've started to be acquisitive. They have historically been adverse to debt, but when they acquired Wrigley in 2008 alongside Warren Buffett, that incurred a significant amount of debt, which was a departure from their previous M.O. as far as financing goes. And also, they have let somebody else run the company. So they have evolved in the last 20 to 30 years, I think it's fair to say, from what was a very disciplined, I mean, they're still disciplined, but they had this very rigorous, maybe is the better word, approach to doing things. And they didn't really deviate from that. And now they've sort of adapted and pivoted, and they've been more flexible with how they've approached building out their businesses through acquisition, through debt financing, and so on. So I think that's worthwhile mentioning that they have definitely changed to a, to a large degree how they've gone about expanding their business.
2: Yeah. And at, at the same time, I think it's very interesting in that historically, they were known for being absolutely cutthroat in all of their operations. But like you touched on, they've evolved where they're still hi- hyper-competitive in the, the snacking segment. They seem very focused on looking at where the puck is going, and they're very focused on the pet care segment and seeing that as having much more long-term promise, which is evident not just by their current portfolio, but just the general trend in, in shifting of uh, acquisitions to focus you know more heavily on pet care and scale that out.
1: I think that's worth expanding on for a little bit. Not to sort of tout my own research here, but I recently wrote a blog post on this uh, secular shift and how consumers think about their pets and spending all sorts of amounts on their pets. But it's a real trend. And that category has grown like six and a half percent per annum for 30 plus years with, with hardly any notice of a decline, even in the toughest of economic times, like during the financial crisis. And so I think it's just a recognition on their part that confectionery and food is very mature. It's very difficult because you're fighting with Hershey and Nestle and ConAgra and General Mills and all these other companies for fractions of a percent of market share, whereas the pet category is still growing at I think a faster than GDP rate and it's still pretty fragmented. There are some major players in dog food, but services is still largely fragmented. And so it's just a recognition on their part that the path of least resist- resistance is just holding the line and confectionery and snacks and food and really kind of going for the the long game and pets, pet services, pet products, and so on.
0: Yeah. And it, I think there's gotta be some kind of, Top level thinking that they also have the opportunity to use use the vet clinics as their own channel to push all the products that they've acquired right through it, starting with pet food up to you know medicines and other chew toys and supplies. Whereas if they were allowed by the FTC, I don't even think they would have the desire to acquire a Kroger's or something like that to put just to push their candy and rice. Uh, I think it's a little more doable in the pet care business. you, you say,
2: hey, your your you, your sick dog needs to buy you need to buy pedigree asap
0: right. it's it's the difference is that it's a more focused product list. It's a lot less than a supermarket where you have to carry all sorts of other products from your competitors as well to sell through that grocery store or supermarket, whereas with you and a vet clinics, what is it? over two thousand? Twenty five hundred? You know, they 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 can control their uh, supplies better in in retailing and and have a better better view of revenues and growth and again kind of kind of like the you mentioned Glencore in relation to Mars having their own commodities trading firm. All these foots and and fingers and different segments of the pet care business can better inform them on which markets to focus more capital in more advertising dollars in and getting all those different data points from different parts of the whole industry i think is probably another thing that it could have attracted them to the to the pet care industry
1: i think it's it's interesting to note because you talk about using the vet clinics as a distribution for your products and correct me if i'm wrong but something like hill's science diet which i believe is a colgate palm olive product that's available only through your vet i think it's by prescription only and that's a super premium dog food that's kind of interesting to me because other competing products you can go find and if you're a blue buffalo consumer or rather your pet as a blue buffalo consumer you can go probably buy that at a lot of other retail outlets but that premium market is really where a lot of the growth is, as far as I know. And so controlling that point of distribution is a, a very good point, Doug, because you can use that as a method or an avenue to push a lot of different products. So it's a kind of vertical integration on a smaller scale.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting how they've, how they've been able to do this over 10, 20 years. But I was looking at our notes, and I think their next largest pet food acquisition after their original... Chapel Brothers in the UK in the 30s was Calcan in the 1960s. Calcan was one of the largest makers of dog and cat food in, in cans. And another interesting side note: the founder of Calcan sold, sold the business to Mars, and then he started a new business after that, Stag Foods, which became one of the largest makers of canned chili for humans. Wow! And I, and I think he sold that to Hormel. I, I forget when, but. Another can do a whole nother episode on that guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to explore in that, which is, as far as consumer goods go, it's kind of funny because I think in the the stock market world, as far as consumer products are concerned, a lot of people recently have looked at beauty and cosmetics is maybe the fastest growing category but you could argue that pet food is has been the more stable performer the the issue of course is that there's hardly any pure plays on pet food and products but mars is pushing pretty hard to be the category leader in a lot of those areas of the pet category I guess if I had a question for you guys, if you were to come up with a comp for what what, what is Mars, uh, I'll save mine for last, but if you were to make a public version, like let's say you wanted to assemble Mars in your portfolio as closely as possible using public comps, what would you do?
0: Oh man, that's a tough one. We all know it's a tough one. <laughs> I think you'd have to take a scalpel to some publicly listed companies like Nestle or Hershey's to get an exact replica of Mars. Yeah, you look at
2: Col- General Mills, Colgate, uh, Mandalas. And then you have
0: to suture IDEX on, on top of that for the lab, the vet lab diagnostic equipment and consumables. And then where do you where do you get the veterinary clinics? That's I think the only people that have that are private equity.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's also interesting too that they have an electronics arm so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they also sell vending machines. They used so, to. Oh, they used to. Okay, so they. Do they so have that that was another
0: interesting story. Another thing I had no idea with Mars, they did have a vending machine arm. I forget when it started, 50s, 60s, but they eventually sold. I think both, or at least the North American and Japanese arm of their vending machines, to a group of private equity companies. Right before the great financial crisis happened,
1: because I was going to say if they if they've got some sort of electronics division, because I couldn't remember if they how much of a, a part of the company that is, but but it's it's not a zero, and and so they they have that element as well, and so I guess my thinking is, you know, it's this company that that it's part Nestle, part Glencore, part IDEX, it's its own unique entity, and I find that fascinating because I am not sure that it could. Exist that way as a public company. I think there would be too many activists involved. They would be pressuring them to divest certain assets, focus on one thing or another.
0: Yeah, it'd be um, a pure play. And I think the, the they would get a they would probably get a discount because of that a holding company discount or
1: yeah a conglomerate discount yeah, yeah a
0: conglomerate discount whatever you want to call it. And yeah, if they became public, I think there would be a lot of intense pressure and eventual discontentment from shareholders most public company shareholders they want steady growth in earnings and revenues and i don't think the the management style at mars lends itself to that at all it's it would be more amazon like in terms of dis, disdain for showing steady profits and revenue growth they're more into investing for the long term even when it depresses short term profits
1: so, I guess my my question is maybe as a a final thought is,
0: will this company stay private? It will until it doesn't
1: well i mean isn't <laughs> I that- think it will
0: eventually become public, but it could be another another generation, but I mean, the thing is they don't have to unless there is some really unless it's truly related to estate planning but I, we don't know any of the details behind that I mean I think I think we knew For, Forrest or Frank forbid at least one or two future generations from selling any shares. but
1: Oh, that's right. And, and it's, it's kind of maybe a little bit of uh, a teaser to some future projects we may tackle. But in 1992, it is rumored that Forrest had some conversations with Nestle as far as selling to Nestle because he wasn't, according to the rumors, I don't think he was too happy with how he he saw his boys running the company. So that's one of the great what ifs, although it officially was never acknowledged. that I think it's pretty, pretty likely that they did have conversations there. There's enough documentation to suggest they did. So it's just one of those things that strikes me is it's easier in some ways to remain private, but it's also very hard to stay private. You have many generational issues succession issues, liquidity issues. There's some statistics I forget that were widely quoted from the I think the nineteen nineties about family businesses, that maybe there's a 34, 35% succession rate from first generation to the second generation. But as you get to the third and fourth and fifth, that gets down to the mid and low single digits. And so I think just the law of averages is against it continuing, although um, it's anybody's guess as to how long or what might bring that about so
0: this gets back to the secrecy of the industry as well I think there are advantages to being private mostly when it when it gives you an informational or data advantage especially if you have competitors who are required to report financial data and statistics about food and candy product categories yeah,
1: disclose their shortcomings so. they,
0: you know Mars can definitely use that to their advantage and uh, their competitors don't have anything right. on Mars.
2: Not yet. I, I think you look at future generations of the Mars shareholders and what they decide to do and future management decides to do. I think it's likely that within our lifetimes, we'll see Mars go public. I'm sure there'll be quite a bit of fanfare upon the announcement. Who knows You know what kind of multiples it gets priced at. But like you guys touched on, I think there'll likely be some investor disappointment, provided that very little of the share capital is sold to the public. It's likely that insiders retain full control. They're likely going to keep operating with a long-term orientation where you have both the short-term and the medium-term potentially be painful or choppy and as a minority shareholder without any say and without that smooth up into the right action that people like, it wouldn't surprise me to see people become uh, disappointed in it as a public entity. We've seen that happen in a handful of other publicly traded family controlled operations. Oh,
0: Devin, you're you're laying the groundwork for Berkshire Hathaway to acquire a partial interest in Mars. I'm imagining a, a similar structure to what they did with pilot acquiring a good chunk to begin with, and then five, 10 years later, acquiring another large chunk of the company. I think that's definitely doable. And given given what we know about the history of the Mars family, their penchant for secrecy, they definitely, despite their enormous wealth today, and even they were wealthy two generations ago, they still had a disdain for any showing of wealth. And I believe... That would probably be mostly true today. They don't need to achieve maximum value for this family business. If it's if it's not going to remain independent, it's going to fall into the hands of a company like Berkshire. He,
2: he did uh, help with the financing of the uh, Wrigley deal, right?
1: Well, and I wanna I wanna touch on that a little bit real quickly because if you think of Devin mentioned what would the multiple be for this company. And I I think you should go check out our website or the for the show notes because we've got some interesting data and, and graphics to lay this out. And so if you think of Nestle trades at about three point two times sales, Hershey's at four point seven, Mondelez at three, Colgate at three point seven. So let's just throw a three multiple, three by multiple on their revenues of forty-five to forty-seven billion. That puts him at about $141 billion market cap. That starts to be a, a pretty good sized company that's larger than Unilever, larger than Mondelez, just behind uh, Philip Morris International. So it, that's a it's a big company that is sort of like this giant in the room that nobody knows a whole lot about. I, I think it will be fascinating to see how it plays out. And as far as I know, if you look at a list of, of billionaires John, Mars and Jacqueline, uh, the family who's still alive, like I think the third generation. they're each worth I, I think about 30 billion apiece. So the family is super wealthy. It just remains me seeing how that passes on, and it's just going to be really fascinating to see how it plays out over time.
0: All right, do you guys want to talk about any of uh, the interesting anecdotes about Mars or the industry in general? that we came across in our research?
2: Yeah. T- tying back to the company's long-term orientation, there is a quote from an article from 1994, quoting an executive from a rival, said, I fear them even more as a competitor now. They don't play by the same rules as everybody else. And when this article was written, you know they were seeding market share in, in, in certain geographies and do their secretive nature and being private, no one really knew that what they were cooking, you know, behind the scenes. And while it appeared that they were maybe giving up, it's like, you know, not not even close. And you you never know what they're planning
0: to do in the future. That's a psychological advantage, right? <laughs> that secrecy, that secrecy gives. Yeah.
1: And I'll add my little takeaway is just kind of come back to this idea of a, a trade-off involved in the public-private mindset. because. They, as many things as Mars has done well, there is a certain kind of cross-pollination that occurs when a company is public and acquisitive. And I think back to some research I've done on uh, grocers with the a and which was a fantastic family-run business founded and led by a couple of brothers. And they could never really adapt once those brothers were gone Because most of the executives who were left behind had never really been trained to make critical decisions or to think for themselves, which may be a little too harsh. But you look at a company like Kroger, which has been acquisitive and has adapted over time, and they've cross-pollinated with different executives from different companies. And so there's this new blood that gets injected into the companies over time. That happened with Hershey's and some of the acquisitions they've made, certainly with Nestle, how they've built their empire. So there have been times in Mars's history where they have dropped the ball, they haven't noticed the best opportunities in uh, the rice category, Ben's original, formerly uh, Uncle Ben's. They, ha- they were kind of the dominant player, really the first product there, and they have ceded share to uh, Quaker Oats in that category. I wonder if some of that is uh, due to complacency on the part of management, which may or may not be tied to them being private, but you have to wonder if, if that would have been different in a, a public company. So it's just kind of interesting to think about any corporate structure, private, public, whatever. There's always tradeoffs involved. And it's important to remember that when thinking about an investment or how to organize your company and the future going forward because success breeds complacency. Uh, If you're accountable only to yourself as an owner in a family-run company, uh, that can be exacerbated. There's probably ways to head it off, but it's difficult to do. So, you know, to some extent, being public keeps you sharp, keeps you accountable, but it can also have its own downsides. So I just find that kind of interesting to dwell on a little bit and think about how there's really no perfect solution. It's always a trade-off involved.
0: A few anecdotes that really stood out for me. One of them gets back to both the secrecy that people within the candy industry demanded of themselves, and also the competitive nature that the industry had with itself. From the book that we read, it said that the industry averages about 150 new products each year. and and this was as of about 1999, 2000. But of those 150 products, only a handful are popular enough to stay on the shelf. So, And really, these so-called new candies are just variations on the old popular brands, like adding almonds to M&Ms might be a new candy that's developed. So There's only so many variations on chocolate, nuts, and caramel that you can achieve. I think we've gone through all the iterations. And so innovation is extremely hard nowadays. So if you've got a new great product, you are going to make sure that no one else knows about it until it hits the store shelves and also keeping the secret process behind making that candy hidden from view. Another thing that was very interesting about kind of the the industry in general was the extreme importance of being first in a market with a particular product, right? The example in the book was that of, it was the maker of Mounds and Almond Joy. That was a division of Peter Paul and Cadbury. Hershey acquired Mounds and Almond Joy and New York patties from this company. And soon after, Mars created and introduced the Bounty Bar. It's competing, what what are these things made out of? Coconut and chocolate and maybe a nut on top. So anyways, Mars had the Bounty Bar and they tried to compete against Mounds, but Bounty failed after two years, despite in blind taste tests, people saying they preferred Bounty, two to one over Mounds. But in, in markets where Mounds and Almond Joy were not president, such as in Canada and the UK, Bounty was super successful, and no one or very little people in those two countries even know what a Mounds or an Almond Joy bar. Yeah,
1: are. It's, it's super interesting how brand loyal consumers are, even if their taste buds deceive them. I guess during a, a blind taste test, but throughout that the book "Emperors of Chocolate" it just does a, such a great job of discussing how there's really nothing new and confectionery. I mean, everything that's possible has been tried the wafers and a Kit Kat, hazelnut, peanut butter, almonds, peanuts, caramel, you name it. It's just different variations on the same themes. But consumers in their mind, they just maybe it's some kind of Freudian connection to their childhood and what they liked as a kid. But it's very rare that that something new comes along and really sort of captures the imagination. It's just it's difficult to innovate in confectionery because of that and then of course we're also neglecting just how difficult it is to manufacture these things on a mass scale. I mean, just the the idea of Hershey's putting almonds inside of a kiss and making it a hug it seems simple. it's just an it's just an almond dipped in <laughs> chocolate, right? Well no, they had to totally rearrange their their factories to make this and and it's extremely complicated so, It's just, it's it's expensive. There's no guarantee consumers will buy it in mass. So it's just cheaper to kind of rebrand the same things. Yeah.
0: I think it's easier also maybe to get people to buy stuff for their pets, not, not just because they love them more, but you know, it's, you, pets not going to tell you that they prefer one brand over another, you know, unless it's just through like refusing to eat or like vomiting uh, up the bad tasting food shortly thereafter but once you land on a brand that you think your dog prefers you're going to stick with that for a long long time another another just interesting difference between food for humans versus food for pets you could take alcohol for example i think more people are willing to follow and try new trends when it comes to alcohol we've seen various trends in alcohol People going from scotch and whiskey to vodka to gin to tequila. Your pet's not gonna Exactly. He's either. not gonna he's not gonna demand he's not gonna start with grains and then want fish and then want cow and then want chicken. No.
1: Yeah, yeah Scruffy's not very likely to go on a hunger strike unless he gets the premium puppy chow. You know, after about forty five minutes he'll probably get hungry and change his mind. But I, I think it's it's interesting because you're right, Doug. This has played out and a couple of occasions, I think, of whiskey and how much that category suffered with the introduction of white spirits with vodka in the 60s. I mean, there's some reasons for that, but that kind of took that category by, by storm. And then, of course, when President Carter deregulated the breweries. The brewery industry in the late 70s, that opened a door for a lot of craft brewers, which have taken, I think, a lot of share from the major brewers. I guess there's some element of there's less startup costs involved and a more immediate payoff in some of those categories than in something like confectionery, where you really have to have a lot of infrastructure in place, distribution, shelf space in a grocery store. Uh, relationships with major retailers. So it's, it's always fascinating to break down these categories and think they're all basic consumer staple products, but the details matter quite a bit when it comes down to how they perform.
0: I can do one more thing that we kind of didn't talk about a lot, but the idea of new technologies opening up the market even wider for a certain category. I mean, we talked about this in our very first episode with the vending machine companies, how the technology of change-making machines and then currency-reading machines enabled the vending machine manufacturers and the operators to go gangbusters with growth for many, many years. In the case of the chocolate and confectionery industries, I think the first significant technology advance was the invention of air conditioning by Carrier. That expanded and opened up new markets that were hotter and warmer in climates. And in the book also talked about in the very, very early days, the chocolate makers, candy makers, they would literally shut down production when I forget what the temperature was, but it was like 70 something Fahrenheit where right. the candy would just melt. And so it was pointless to continue operating the, the manufacturing line. But anyways, the, the, the invention of AC. And then by the 80s or the 90s, everyone was gung-ho about the search for a more heat-resistant chocolate to open up markets even wider and go further south, more towards the equator, where they could sell chocolate that wouldn't melt or would or would just not turn into liquid, but more fudge-like, perhaps. And this, this gets to the, the very interesting story of the, the PR spat and dispute during the Gulf War, where you have Hershey and Mars. Well, at first, Hershey very publicly stating that it had developed its desert bar and then donating you know, several hundred thousand of them to troops in the Middle East. But it was actually Mars that had also developed a similar technology for its candy. It actually won the contract to supply the armed forces, and it was like a one $1.5 million contract that they were awarded. When Hershey's got wind of this award, like immediately the day after, they filed a protest with the, the GAO office, the the Office of Government Accountability, for this teeny tiny contract that was awarded for a candy, where typically you'd see something that's in the billions or hundreds of millions being protested by a defense contractor. And this is also again one of the very few instances where Mars management felt compelled in a rare instance to go to the press to uh, Explain the facts regarding this contract award.
1: Right. And I think that little anecdote also sort of supports some earlier comments we made, which is Hershey does not have the external market presence that Mars does. I mean, Hershey cannot afford to lose or cede any ground in the U.S., they just don't have much of a presence at all outside of the U.S. Mars could, I wouldn't say they could take it or leave it, but. It's not their primary function, and so I think episodes like that probably inform their decision to think, okay, well, what's the point of cutting each other's throats in confectionery? The easier money's made in pet category, and so on, and so that's probably just another reason why they shifted their focus. And so if you're in a competition with somebody like Hershey, who that's their that's their life's blood, they cannot afford to seed ground. It's just not worth. Um, this sort of brutal battle for market share with somebody who has a lot more to lose than you. And there's this path of least resistance in those other categories.
0: All right. Should we end on a, a fact or a piece of trivia? What's your favorite Mars product? I would say Snickers. And this was going to be also the Snickers is the topic of my question to you guys, but I go with Snickers.
1: Oh, I think Snickers.
2: Too. I'm going to go with Twix.
0: Excellent choices. Really can't go wrong. They are all awesome. Anyways, do you guys know who Snickers was named after? Oh gosh, that's somebody's <laughs> the dog. The family dog. Very close. The fam uh, a favorite horse of the Mars family. Uh, uh, it was Snickers bar was introduced in in 1930.
2: Oh, they they had the racing yeah. horses, didn't they?
0: Yeah, the- yeah. Frank Mars did for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and as. I forget when this article I got this from was published, but at least in the last 10 or 20 years, it says 99 tons of peanuts go into making over 15 million Snickers bars each day. And it is still, as far as I know, the world's most popular candy bar.
1: All right. So I cheated. I have one (laughs) other question for you guys. So Forrest Mars, where does he fall in the pantheon of American industrialists? I've already made my case that he's underappreciated given the empire that he built and the categories that he's sort of helped build out controversial figure. Just curious where you guys think he might fall. Uh, not saying he's Henry. Well, I was going to say Henry Ford,
0: you could probably put him a, maybe above Henry Ford or right below him, but given that we know still know so little and he's not really lent himself to being studied as in depth as um, the Ford family.
1: And I think he'd be okay with that. I don't think he cared about that. You know, he just wanted to dominate in in quiet. He
2: did not seem interested in being on lists.
1: Yeah. But, you know, it's just kind of amazing that you can find Mars products in many homes in the U.S. and throughout the world. And because we choose or because we just don't know enough about him, we choose to kind of ignore it. But you really cannot overstate his impact on American industry and, and several different major consumer categories and so i'm hoping that more information will become available because i really find him to be a fascinating if not controversial figure
0: if you enjoyed this episode head over to preferredsharespodcast.com On the site, there's a full list of resources and additional data for you to dig into. And on the site, you can subscribe to the podcast directly so all future episodes land directly in your inbox. If you want to support Preferred Shares, the single most helpful thing you can do is to spread the word. Share Preferred Shares with others who love business history as much as you and we do.